Okay, let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. During that time, we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us be still and know that You are God. Help us to recognize what is really important in this life. The brevity of it and our obligation and duty towards You to grow in grace and knowledge. Help us to recognize why we are really here. Help us to focus upon Your mighty Word this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, or you can look up here. We've been studying the personal sense of destiny. Here I have the personal sense of eternal destiny. We're not talking about our destiny here on earth, on this planet for this brief time. We're talking about the big show, the big deal, what happens after this very brief life. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and 36 is all about what we've been focusing on lately. Hebrews 10:35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Confidence in what? This is talking about your confidence in God. This is talking about your personal sense of eternal destiny, which has a great reward. How do you throw away your confidence? Nobody does that on purpose. Nobody has spiritual momentum moving forward in God's plan and will purposely just cast it aside. Usually what happens is either event an event will happen that will cause them Uh, to be discouraged or distracted. Most of the time, it just gets, this this throwing it away comes from being sloppy in your spiritual life. It's not something planned, not something that you really desire to happen or even really know that happens. It just happens gradually as we decide that other things are more important than being in God's Word and growing in grace and knowledge. And so this is a warning. He says, don't do it. Don't throw it away. Stay alert. Keep moving forward spiritually because there is great benefit. Not only a reward, but a mega reward for those who just don't cast it aside. Because see, once you stop your spiritual momentum, you stop the intake of God's Word into your soul, that spiritual nourishment, then what happens is you automatically start losing confidence. And the rate of forgetting exceeds the rate of learning, and you're on a downhill spiral. Verse 36, For you have need of endurance. The writer of Hebrews knew that it's so easy for us to have spurts here and there of spiritual vigor. And then 
getting off course, getting distracted. You need to have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you have grown in grace. You, like Paul, can say that I have completed the course. I have finished the race. Therefore, there's great reward waiting for me. Once you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, if you come to this church hardly more than one time, then you'll know that this, what was promised, is not talking about going to heaven. It's not talking about residing in heaven. You don't have to have endurance for that. That's already a done deal. That was accomplished the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ. The things that it's referring to of what was promised is that great rewards, recognition, being crowned, receiving honor, sharing God's glory, having great opportunities, in heaven. It's very important that we don't cast that aside. Now we're going to look at some examples of personal sense of destiny. We went through one last time. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11 is the Heroes chapter, but it's a great chapter to go to to look at examples of people who had a personal sense of destiny. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. We covered this some last time, but I want you to just think, for, uh, just put yourself in Abraham's place for a moment. He was living in Ur of the Chaldees, which was a pagan city, but it was a great metropolis, great wealth, a lot of idols, had a ziggurat there, all the stairs going up to where they would worship pagans and so forth, a pagan worship. And God spoke to him and said, I'm going to. I'm going, I've called you to go to another place, to a place that I am going to give you. And so Abraham probably went into his wife Sarah and said, Sarah, uh, we need to move. And she says, oh, yeah, God spoke to me and said that he wants me to leave. He's called me to go to a place that he's going to, uh, to give us. And she says, where is that place? I don't know. Well, what are we to take? Can we take our family along? No. We're just to move out. What do you think Sarah said? What would you say to your husband if he said that? (laughs) Believe there might be a little resistance there. Well, Abraham was faithful to a point. He took some of his family... He took even his father. And because of that, he didn't go a straight shot to the land of Canaan, the promised land. He went to Haran first. And they had to stay there until 
his father died, and then they went on to Canaan. I can, I can sympathize with, with Abraham, even though it was wrong for him to disobey God, but to, to, to just launch out. I guess God directed him of what, what north, south, east, west, which way am I going? And he's, he had no idea what was before him, but he knew what he was leaving. He was a wealthy man. He had security. He, was, he had a, a established a city there that uh, he was going to leave behind going into the I don't know what. Or he didn't know what. So when we look at this, we understand that there was great faith and trust on Abraham's part. But he trusted what God said. God told him, I have a place for you. And he understood, it's going to be better than what you've got now. Verse 9. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in the foreign land, dwelling in tents. with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. What about this? This is, this is something. I don't know what dwelling place Abraham had when he was in Ur, but when he got to the promised land, he lived in tents. And when he was in the promised land, he was very wealthy. So why didn't he buy? Uh, why didn't he build a palace? Why didn't he have a, a, a really comfortable place to live in? Again, because he was trusting God that he was going to receive something that was much better than a temporal home. <clears throat> Look at verse ten. For he was looking for the city which has the foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Now, what does it mean he was looking? Did it mean that he could, he could uh, actually visualize this, that he could look uh, down through time and, and see uh, what God had for him? No. He saw it the same way that we see it, and that is in our mind's eye. He was thinking about what God told him, and he was focusing on that, and when he did... It made him make certain decisions. You see, that's something that happens when you have a personal sense of eternal destiny. It affects what you do. It's not just a, a vague hope. It's not just something that you think might happen someday. It's so real to you that it affects the decisions that you make every day. And every day, he lived in a tent rather than uh, living in a palace or something else that he could live in that would be um, that be more comfortable for him. In other words, he had an eternal view, not a temporary view. He was looking forward to this. The important thing is not what we live in, but what we look for. You understand that? All of us have homes, I would imagine. We're very fortunate if we have a home. Some homes are better than other homes. But you know one thing that every home has in, in common? It's got problems, doesn't it? You can have the best home that was ever built, and you're still going to have problems. 
Now, you could blame it on gravity. If you, if you built a house, if some builders built a house, there it is, it's finished, completed. Nobody lived in it. Everybody just said, isn't this a grand house? And over a period of years, you know what's going to happen? That house will crumble to the ground because it's going to have problems. I've seen this happen before. Not one that hasn't been lived in, but I've seen homes that were lived in. The people lived, moved away or for some reason they weren't maintaining the house and it collapsed. He was looking forward to a city. Underline that in your Bible. It's going to be significant in just a few moments as I'll show you. He was looking for a city. You see that? Underline it. Which has foundations and whose architect and builder is God. What city do you think that's referring to? Were you here last Sunday? You remember the New Jerusalem? See, these Old Testament believers weren't complete dummies. Now, they knew about a promised city. Now, they may not have known as much as we do because we have the completed canon of Scripture. But they were, uh, Abraham was looking so forward to this New Jerusalem that he didn't even care about what he was living at the time. That is a manifestation of personal sense of destiny. Let's go to verse 17. We're going to come back and pick up some verses. But by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. We went over this last, well, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. So I'll not go over it again, but I will tell you this. This is the ultimate test. And isn't it interesting? He says, offering up his only begotten son. Was Isaac his only son? No. Was it his first son? No. What about Ishmael? But it was the first son of the promise. God had promised him a son, and it wasn't Ishmael, because God promised him a son through Sarah which was barren, and Abraham was 99, so there wasn't much chance of them having a, a child, but God promised it. And they had a child. Verse 18, And it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. What does that mean? God told Abraham, You're going to have a son. His name's going to be Isaac. And he didn't have a son at the time. And before the son was born, I mean, uh, after the son was born, here you have Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him. And yet God had already made the promise, your sons, your, your children are going to be as the, the sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. He's going to have great, in fact, that's what Abraham means. His name was changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means a father of many. And it seemed impossible at the time. But he knew when he was walking to the location where he was going to sacrifice his only begotten son, according to this, he knew that God had promised him, you're going to have all these heirs. And at that time, how many did he have? By Sarah? One. Isaac. Verse 19. 
He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That type there is really a type of Jesus Christ. In other words, when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, it was a preview of what what, what God the Father was going to do for his son. There's the type. And the reason that Abraham was willing to carry it out, even raising the knife, ready to shove it down into the chest of his only begotten son, only son from Sarah, was because he believed God that what he said was going to happen in the future was going to happen. Is that not a personal sense of destiny? Of course, we know the account. God stopped him. He didn't allow him to do it. But he saw that he was faithful in doing it. That was a supreme test. Now, drop back to verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who who had promised. Let's stop there just a second. You see something a little out of sorts here? you know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. Who laughed? Sarah did, didn't she? Remember when the Lord was telling Abraham that he and Sarah were going to have a, a, an heir, was going to have a son? Here's Sarah over here behind the tent. You know, she's peeking out like ladies might do from time to time. But we all might do it from time to time. She's like this. We put a glass to the door. She was hearing this. And it was so ridiculous to her. She's so not trusted the Lord, that she just laughed. Abraham didn't hear, but the Lord did. And he asked Abraham, why has Sarah laughed? And I'm not sure if Abraham really heard her or not. Maybe he did and was embarrassed and said, what? What? Laughing? What what laughter? And the Lord said, yes, she laughed. And to remind her of that, his name was Isaac Laughter. So my point is, what happened? We see in this verse, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Last phrase in verse 11. Something happened between that laughter and considering the Lord to be faithful in what he promised. And there's something there for us that we don't want to miss. Because there's going to be times in your life there already has been, there will be in the future, times when it's just hard for you to trust the Lord. Hard for you to do what you're supposed to do or even really anticipate and believe of the the great promises that He's given us is really true. And I think what Sarah did and what certainly we are to do is be truthful with, with God and just say, you know, I'm just, I'm just having a hard time with this one. I want to believe, I, 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 but I'm, 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 just, I'm just stumbling here. It's okay to ask God to help you have more faith. Did you know that? You can ask God, help me to have stronger faith. You think He's going to answer a prayer like that? Of course He is. He did it for Sarah, the one that was laughing. And that will... 
bolster and strengthen your personal sense of eternal destiny. Verse 12, Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at, at that. In other words, it's talking about Abraham being 99. Sexually, he was dead. It, it was just, this just doesn't happen. It's not normal. But even so, as many descendants as the stars of the heavens is numbered, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. That's how many descendants he was going to have. That is what Abraham was thinking when he took Isaac to sacrifice him. He thought, I'm going to do, I'm going to be obedient to God and let him sort it out, but I'm trusting him that his promise is true to me. So he lifted that knife and he was ready to, ready to launch it. He was ready to let her rip. Because he trusted what God said. Verse 13. And all these, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, all these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. Let's just stop there for just a second. Without receiving what promises? Was God faithful to them in, in, in promises? Were there things that happened in their life that God promised that came to pass? Yes, many of them. But there's something that did not... Uh, one promise that didn't occur to any of them. Abraham didn't get his promise of the New Jerusalem, did he? What did he have to do? Wait. That's what we all have to do is wait and trust. You see, if you're going to live in the New Jerusalem, you can't live it in this form that we're in now. This mortal form, this sinful, decaying, corrupt body is not the type that can live in the New Jerusalem. And look at that. Underline this. This is so important. But having seen them, seen them, how do you see it? We saw it a while ago. Having seen it and having welcomed them, welcomed these, these, these promises. You know what this word actually means here? Saluting them. You see them afar and you respect it. It's just like, think of this. When you learn these promises, when you learn about the new Jerusalem and all the, the, the potential rewards and decorations and crowns and opportunities and privileges for all eternity... It's like you see them in, the, in your mind's eye. You've heard them. You believe them. And what we do now is snap to and, yes, sir. You know, you salute it. You honor it. You think it means something to me. Showing respect and deep regard and affection and love towards God for providing these things for us, even though we don't have them now, but we can see them in the distance. That's what this is talking about. And then from a distance and having confessed. This means acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now get this. This is so important. We're, we're just sojourners on this planet. You understand that? 
And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are growing in grace and knowledge, you know what you are? An alien. You are something that the unbelievers of this world just don't get. You're odd. You're strange. You don't think the way they do. If you have divine viewpoint, you are going to be an oddball in this world. And if you acknowledge to others that there's more to this life than just what we have right now, and we're looking forward to God's promises, then you're going to be a kook. I'm proud to be a kook. How about you? And the temptation always is pressure. Just like we have air pressure right now in this room, there's always pressure on us to conform to the world. We want to be accepted. And every time that you stand for Christ, every time you witness for Christ, every time you give doctrine to someone and they reject it, it's painful. It stings. But they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. So if you understand what I'm telling you here, that you already have acknowledged, you have seen these great promises, There is going to be a new Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming up to gather us up, His bride, and then there's going to be an evaluation. Rewards, declaration, privilege. The other side of that coin is being ashamed. Can you imagine standing before even an earthly judge? And you're you're standing before Him because of... uh, uh, he's asking you about some particular situation and you've done wrong and he knows every detail of what happened. He knows what you thought then, what you're thinking now. That'd be pretty awesome, wasn't, wouldn't it? But just think if this judge was the God of the universe. What a shame that believers don't have a personal sense of destiny. You see, what makes it personal, we all have a destiny. We understand this. All of us are going to wind up somewhere, aren't we? Even during our time on earth, between now, today, this moment, and the time that we check out, we have a certain destiny. Certain things are going to occur. And some people say, okay, even beyond that, yeah, something might happen. That's about as far as it goes. Yeah, we have a destiny. But when you make it, when I'm talking about a personal destiny, sense of destiny. It means you personally have seen from afar and you have saluted. I get it. Now, I'm going to acknowledge it and I'm going to make decisions in my life based on what I see through His Word and His promises. Then, it's personal. And that's what we're seeing in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, It says, our citizenship isn't here. Where is our citizenship? You know where it is. In heaven. We're just passing through. If you are too comfortable with the world, then you've got spiritual problems. But if you're comfortable with God, you've got worldly problems. You can have problems either way. But I'd much rather have problems with the world than I would to have problems with God, wouldn't you? Huh? Verse 14.
For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. In other words, those that have a personal sense of destiny. When it says a country of their own, what it's talking about is God has given it to them. It's already theirs. That's what they're seeking. They're not living in the moment, in, in the now, and consumed with the details of life. They're living with the viewpoint of eternity. That's what they make their decisions based on. Because they, they're looking for that country that God has promised that He gives to them. It's already their own. Verse 15, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Just think. I gave you the scenario. Here's Abraham. All right, Abraham, uh, Sarah, the rest of you folks, let's go. We're headed out. Okay, we're following. What direction? I don't know. God's going to tell us. Let's just start walking. The rest of the bunch are back there. I don't know about this. Abraham takes out in faith. And along the road, they had difficulty, didn't they? And it was easy for them, and I don't know if Sarah ever did this. It doesn't say. But it would be very easy for Sarah to say, you know, I went with you far, far, long, uh, far enough on this trek, don't you think? We know what's back there. We know that we have a, a security. We had a home. We had all these things back here. We don't know what's there. Why don't we just go back? That's what this verse is talking about. But look at the verse again in, in, in that context. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out. In other words, if they were thinking, it's getting kind of hard. Let's go back. Who else did that? Remember the Israelites when they left Egypt? What did they say? It's hard. Let's go back. And, and they were in slavery. They had flesh pots to eat out of. It was gruel. It was horrible. But they said, at least we know what it is. Let's go back. And he says, if they were thinking about that, that country they went out of, they would have had the opportunity to return. But they weren't thinking about that. And for us, what's the message? What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about this country here? Are you thinking about the country to come that surely is right around the corner? Great motivation there. Look at verse 16. But as it is, you see, that's what could have happened, verse 16, but this is the truth of it. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Underline that city. City for them. They were thinking about what's coming. A new place. Listen, it's not hard. You don't have to stretch your imagination to think of a, of a place that's better than this earth. That's easy to do, isn't it? I mean, you could say, when you, if we had just the least little bitty glimpse of what God has prepared for us, and we look at a life in the, on this earth that would be living in the lap of luxury and all this, we would say, well, that one sucks. That one stinks. I'm thinking about this one over here, one that God has prepared for us. When you're thinking in that way, you make the right decisions and it changes your life. 
It gives you hope. And then we went over this part about Abraham already. Now, we're going to look at another one in verse 22. Let's just drop down to verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. That's all it says. Well, what's the deal with that? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 13, excuse me, Genesis chapter 50. To my knowledge, Joseph is the only one in the Bible that didn't screw up. In that way, he is a type of Christ. Exodus chapter 50, verse 24. This is the end of Joseph's life. He's about to die. And he says, uh, verse 24 says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land that would be in Egypt where they were to a land which he promised on oath to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. That promise was made in Genesis 15:13. And here we're in Genesis chapter 50 and you have uh Joseph making a big deal ever over where his bones were going to be laid to rest. Now, what's, the, what's going on here? You see, Joseph understood. He knew what God had promised. The Israelites, were, were God's chosen people, were not to live in Egypt, were they? They did for a time. But where was the promise made to Abraham? It was Canaan, not Egypt. And here you have Joseph, which was, had risen to the second highest position in the, in the nation, only under Pharaoh. And he's saying, you take my bones. I want a solemn promise here. You're going to take my bones and put them back in Canaan. I want you to, to bury my bones in Canaan. Why didn't they just say, okay, and they hauled his bones over there to Canaan. They made a trek over there and then come back to Egypt. Well, he was number two in the nation. Egypt, the Egyptians were not going to allow the Jews to haul him off. He was going to be buried in, in um, Egypt, a sarcophagus, you know, they, how they preserved the body and bones. And Joseph knew, he was looking through the corridors of time and knew eventually the Jews, the Israelites, had to get back to Canaan because that's where God told them that he was going to have this place for them. And they, and they were in captivity. See, at that time, the Jews, the Israelites were in good favor because of, of Joseph. And the Pharaoh was uh, really fond of Joseph, to say the least. And so they had good treatment. But over a period of time, they, they multiplied to the point to where the other Pharaohs were afraid that they might take over. So they put them in bondage. They were there for 430 years. But at the end, when they left, what did they leave with? Joseph's bones. And they were taking, taken back to the land of Canaan. Now, why was that? Because one man, Joseph, 
had a personal sense of eternal destiny. And that was a hope. You see, when those Jews were in bondage and they were under hard, uh, the taskmasters, and they were, they were in bitter bondage, they could think, okay, Joseph's bones are just waiting. And there's going to be a time when God is going to allow us to take his bones back to the land of Canaan because God said so. That's where the land of the Israelites were going to be. So another illustration of, by the way, in Exodus 13:19 and Joshua 24:32, we have the realization of that they did carry his bones to Canaan. In Exodus 13:19, Joshua 24:32, you see when you have a personal sense of destiny, it ends up in action and people doing things because of God's promise. Now Moses. <laughs> All right, we're back in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. I'm so glad we're going to get to Moses because this is going to bring some things together here. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago, underline city in your Bible because this is something really neat here. In Hebrews chapter, 23, uh, chapter 11, verse 23. Go with me there now because we're going to see something here. Very interesting. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, underlined beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, what, what, what's going on here? The king had already said that all the male child under two years old were going to be annihilated. He was going to wipe out the male offspring. But it says his parents, when it says uh, by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents, it's his parents that had the faith here. Of course, Moses was just uh, an infant. And, by the way, um, Moses' parents were named Anram. That was his, his, uh, his father's name. And his, and his mother's name was, uh, it's hard to pronounce, I'm looking for it here. Somebody help me. Just, just a bit. Some, yeah. They were the real heroes. Joshebed. Joshebed was her name. Amram and Joshebed. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Huh. Why? Why weren't they afraid of the king's edict if they were going to have to murder their, their offspring? It all has to do with that word beautiful. Now, that word beautiful is the Greek word astesos. That's A-S-T-E-I-O-S. It's an adjective. It comes from the noun astu, A-S-T-U. You know what it means? Get this. A city. 
Moses' parents knew that he was going to be a city dweller. They didn't, they, that didn't mean that they thought he was going to be a city dweller in Egypt, which he was. They knew that he was going to be a city dweller in another city. The same city that Abraham was looking forward to. Isn't it amazing how one word can make a big difference here? According to <coughs> Spiros Zodiades, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, this word, asteos, A-S-T-E-I-O-S, means a city, one who dwells in a city, and by consequence is well-bred, polite, eloquent, as inhabitants of cities may be in comparison with those of the country. Used only of Moses, meaning elegant in external form. You can go to Acts chapter 7, verse 20. Put something here in Hebrews. Go back to Acts chapter 7. Verse 20. And it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely. Underline that word. Guess what that word is? Estesos. In the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. So, this is, yeah, this is uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 20. Underline that lovely. It's the same word, has the same meaning as we found over here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Asteos, A-S-T-E-I-O-S, and it means a city dweller. You see, in their mind, a city dweller had, it was, was, was more attractive. I and mean, even in, in today, you can live in the country and it has no bearing on how beautiful you may be what your looks are. But back then, people out in the country were agricultural. They were out in the sun. Their face was withered. They didn't have all the uh, makeup and all the things to make them. They didn't have the eloquence. They didn't have the sophistication of a city dweller. That's what this is all about. But the whole point is, it's talking about a city. That's why Amram and Josephus were not afraid of what the king's edict was because they had faith because God, you, did you notice that in, in Acts chapter 7? And he was a lovely, a city dweller in the sight of God. God considered him a city dweller. City dweller where? In the New Jerusalem. If Moses was going to be a city dweller in the New Jerusalem, it would mean what? Moses had to live. And that's what Amram and Joseph knew. And so they didn't care about the king's edict. You think a personal sense of eternal destiny isn't important? Now back to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused 
to be called the son of a Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. There's no way that any of us can even have a clue how monumental that was. One in a million or less had the opportunity to become Pharaoh. Moses was in line to be the next Pharaoh. Pharaoh was like a god on earth. He could have anything he wanted. Luxury, women, uh, everything was at his beck and call. And he turned his back on it. Even to the point to where he would endure the, and be identified and endure with his people, the Israelites, the suffering and misery they were going, they were going under. What possibly could make a person do that? Was he out of his mind? He had saluted God's promises from afar. He was acknowledging them by what he did. It was a personal sense of eternal destiny that had the power to cause Moses to do something that staggers the imagination. Did he do the right thing? <laughs> Had he been Pharaoh, become another Pharaoh, we wouldn't even know about Moses. Moses would be no big deal. But even now, before eternity, you can talk to people, even children, about Moses, and they know who Moses is. His blessings already started here on earth. Think what they're going to be like in heaven. He made the right decision, didn't he? Look at verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was what? Looking for reward. He's looking to the reward. There's nothing wrong with anticipating and looking forward to and modifying your life so that you're going to get rewards that God has promised. That's what Moses was doing. Looking for them. He had to know about them first, didn't he? And then he was living his life in a way that would make decisions based on his personal sense of destiny. Looking to the reward. Right up to the right of that or in your margin put PSD or PSED, personal sense of eternal destiny. Verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as, look at this, verse 27, seeing him who is unseen. Looking, seeing, thinking, that's what he was doing. It's unseen. He, he Verse 27 says that he, he didn't fear the wrath of the king. When Moses went back to Egypt and went into the king's, king's court there, right up to the throne, what do you think he was doing? You think his knees were shaking? What would yours be like? No problem. Why? Because he was seeing him who is unseen, and that is, of course... The Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that seeing is a 
participle, present active participle. He kept on seeing, kept on seeing, kept on seeing. He kept on concentrating on, focusing on, and thinking about that promise out in the future. His parents saw it. Do you think his parents ever talked to him about this? Well, I don't know if they had time, if he was old enough to understand, but certainly they understood it. Over time, they, he did. That's why he made the decision. Verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. These are manifestations of God obeying, excuse me, of Abraham, excuse me, Moses, there you go, Moses obeying God because he trusted God. He had that personal sense of destiny. And then verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. There's something about this verse. Verse 20 says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea. Now, do you think this is giving, giving kudos, giving accolades to the Israelites? Seems like it, but it's not. All you have to do is go back and read the account. What were, what were the Israelites doing when they were surrounded by these big walls on each side? The, the Red Sea was right there at their back, and they're looking this way, and here, com- here comes Pharaoh's chariots. Did they say, Moses, no problem. God's going to take care of us. Relax. (laughs) Well, you know better than that. They had a complete meltdown. You probably would too. If you didn't have a personal sense of eternal destiny and leave that situation in God's hands, you would be melting down too. Now, don't deny it. You know you would. Anybody would. There was no escape. It was Moses who said what? Stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. Why could he say that? Because he had a personal sense of eternal destiny. He was living in the light of eternity. And he trusted the Lord. You see, when you have that, you're making decisions based on what's way out there. You've already saluted it. You already acknowledged it. Then you make decisions. And what you say and what you do reflect that. That's what Moses was doing. So this, again, is a great reflection of Moses with a personal sense of eternal destiny. Dr. Vance Harvner said this. This is a quote from him. You might want to write this down. I think it's good. Moses chose the imperishable, saw the invisible, and did the impossible. Moses chose the imperishable. See, he knew that all the things that Egypt had to offer him was perishable. It was it would it would be a flash in the pan, then it was over. It was done with. He was seeking the imperishable. Those rewards and decorations that last for all eternity. He saw the invisible. You know, I'm trying I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm teaching it the best I can. And giving it in vivid terms and word pictures the best I can. But you can't literally see it. I can't describe to you and say, oh yeah, there it is. Now let me tell you what it looks like. None of us can do that. 
But the Bible gives a description of it. We don't literally see it, but we, what's more important is that we see it and believe it in our soul. We think about it, and it means something to us. And he did the impossible. So here it is again. Moses chose the imperishable, saw the invisible, and did the impossible. The same thing can happen to you. All you have to do is trust and obey. Remember the song? You have to, you have to know what God has, for, in, has in store for you. And believe it. Think about it. See it. Salute it. Have appreciation for it. And it will change everything about you. When you choose the imperishable, you see the invisible, then you can do the impossible. Everyone, please bow your heads. If you're here and you don't have a personal sense of destiny, in fact, you might not even know what's going to happen after you die. It's time for you to get right with God. It's time for you to make that most important decision that is simply believing that Jesus Christ took your sins on Himself on the cross while you were yet a sinner. He was buried and resurrected and offers eternal life to you right now, this moment, if you will simply, by faith, trust in Him and His work rather than you and your own feeble work. In that moment, because of God's matchless grace, you are born again. And you too can have a personal sense of eternal destiny when you choose the imperishable. You can see the invisible and you can do the impossible. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You are our God. Not only are You mindful of us, You've already done the unspeakable thing the unspeakable gift of giving Jesus Christ for our salvation. But what you have in store for us boggles the mind. Help us to focus on what we cannot see and have that personal sense of eternal destiny that changes our lives. And you receive all the glory and praise for it's richly deserved. And we pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.